Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory and Kyle Momstrom's on the hot mic. Kyle, what's going on? Hi, Eric. How are you doing today? Dude, I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I know, I know the, the listening audience cannot see you, but you are dressed in some particular colors. That's right, baby. Chiefs. Go Chiefs. Go Chiefs. Weekend. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping for the same thing. We'll see. I know you have a guest. I'm hoping he's also rooting for the same team or else we just basically we just shut the podcast down and, and we're done right, now. Man. But you have Connor Southwell today, correct? I do. Super right excited on. to have Connor. How you doing, Connor? Hey, guys. Pleasure to be here. Connor is a international tax attorney from Citroen Cooperman, and we have got a great show ahead of you. We're talking about international tax planning, which may not sound all that sexy, but there is a lot of meat to this topic. And I'm very excited to have Connor here because I've been working with him on some cases and he is just a wealth of knowledge and just, he's just a great guy. So Connor, how you doing today? I'm well, thank you for the intro. As, uh, as you said, I'm an international tax lawyer. I'm a director with Citroen Cooperman's International Tax Group. Personally, I'm based in Los Angeles, but our office is primarily uh, on the East Coast, although we do have um, a few LA offices. We now have Chicago, Miami. Yeah, and I focus on international tax, primarily on the individual side. But as you'll see as we get into this, international tax for individuals kind of touches upon all issues, corporate, estate planning, regular income tax issues. So yeah, a lot to get into. Yeah. So let's, uh, for the conversation for everybody, I want to set the context of like why we're talking about this, who this is going to apply for. So who does this apply to? So we usually see international tax issues in two contexts, right? Uh, maybe three. So what I call inbound planning. So people from outside the U.S. who are not citizens coming in, whether they're on a visa or applying for a green card. Uh, we also see outbound planning, so U.S. people or companies setting up operations in foreign companies. We also do a fair amount of controversy work that usually arises in the context of uh, individuals not knowing the quite arduous reporting obligations that the U.S. imposes on citizens and resident aliens with respect to foreign investments and in companies, trusts, stuff like that. Yeah, there's uh, the you know we're working on a case, and that's exactly what came out, right? Was... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a lot of issues tied into one. Uh, you know, you'll you'll approach a client, you think you're looking at one very narrow international tax issues and uh, soon realize that there's a lot more there than meets the eye. So the reason we have you on is because you are the expert in your team and you and Sean I've been working with. And, and there is so much complexity. And for the audience, right, if you think the the internal revenue code is complicated, try tacking on international law and treaties and tax code and 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 navigating that it becomes it's it's almost overwhelming so you really need somebody like connor and uh to join in on that and so in the essence of of setting context with regards to you know primarily a lot of this is going to be income tax planning related but there's also the estate black estate tax component gift tax component and but for context of a U.S. citizen, from a taxation standpoint, there's this concept called worldwide taxation and worldwide income. What is what is what are they talking about with that? Right. So, 
we are, I think maybe there's one other country that taxes citizens on worldwide income, regardless of where the, the citizen lives or is a resident. I believe that's Eritrea, but uh, don't quote me on that. But for purposes of this conversation, the U.S., if you're a U.S. citizen, you're always going to be filing a U.S. tax return and paying U.S. tax. Even if you, you know, live in the U.K., you have a job over there, you have no connection to the U.S., all your income is from an employer over there, still got to file a tax return, still got to pay U.S. tax. Obviously, we have foreign tax credit mechanisms in place to ensure that you're not paying tax to two jurisdictions on the same income. But like I said, it's a reporting obligation that you'll you'll never get out of unless you expatriate. The flip side of that, Connor, is that for people of the UK or, or anywhere in, there's other countries that if you come to the United States, you may not be taxed on worldwide income from their homeland. Yeah, most countries are like that. So just as an example, we were talking about the UK, you know, they have their own statutory residence rules, but once you cease to meet those rules, whether you're a citizen or not, you're no longer taxed on your worldwide income. Whereas in the U.S., if you're a citizen, we don't even look at the residency test because we just tax you on everything at all times. Well, that creates some planning opportunities that we'll touch upon because they're, you know, from the inbound and outbound, if you're a U.K. citizen or wherever you're from and you're creating a business here in the United States, there's some opportunity there. So Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you hit on something that's relevant before, you know, part of the complexity that comes with practicing what I'll call U.S. international tax is that you really have to consider and to a degree understand the tax laws of other countries, because what we do here could have an impact in wherever the person is from, whether they're, they're resident there, or whether they just have a business there. So we try to align our advice with local country advice to the extent that we can. Yep. I agreed. And the, and to the audience, the, in our business, and I'm sure you've seen this Connor, people go to legal zoom and they set up an LLC or whatever they do. And then they don't really think through a lot of the issues on the U S side, but they do know they need to file a tax return. And then if you're somebody from abroad and you decide to start a U a U.S. business, and you think it's just as easy as setting up an LLC, I think you're going to find in this conversation, it's not that easy. And you're really going to need somebody like Connor to help navigate those waters because it gets complicated really quick and it gets pretty painful pretty quick. Exactly. Yeah. And, and even if you you know, have the foresight to know that you have to file a U.S. tax return, the devil's in the details, right? It's what goes into that tax return with respect to international reporting that really drives the complexity. And I think that's where someone like me and someone like Kyle can come in, try to simplify things, or, or if nothing else, just handle the, the burden of compliance. So, so coming back, let's, so you said inbound, outbound, and the kind of the compliance thing. Let's talk about inbound a little bit. So you set the context on worldwide income for U.S. citizens. If someone comes in from abroad and they're a green card holder, do they get taxed on their worldwide income if they're an Australian citizen and they moved here and they get a green card? Absolutely. Yeah. Once you get your green card, you're essentially treated as a U.S. citizen with respect to how you're taxed. Again, worldwide income. Obviously, there's you know immigration-specific concerns that you have to take into account with a green card. For example, you have to be here for 183 days every year. But whether you are or not, I mean, you know, you could have a green card and get a leave permit, spend 
no time here in a given year, you're still taxed as a as a, uh, a citizen would be worldwide income. Well, that's uh, I don't know if the word's egregious, but they got a they got a uh, they got a monopoly on the taxation process, right? Well, it's a, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I think the Treasury views it as um, you know the price you pay for having the privilege of getting a green card, right? Similar yeah. to being a citizen. I think what really trips people up is the people who are not citizens, not green card holders. They come here for whatever, to set up a business, spend time with family, and they find out that they become a U.S. tax resident just by virtue of the amount of time that they've spent here. Um, what does that mean? Can you on that? Because I was just going to ask you about a yeah. U.S. tax resident and what that means. Yeah. So, you know, without jumping too far into the, the complexity of the rules, basically, if you're not a citizen, not a green card holder, and you spend 183 days in the U.S. in a given year, you are treated as a resident alien, which means you're taxed on worldwide income, you're subject to the full purview of our international reporting rules, you got to file an FBAR, so on and so forth. The way we count that 183 days is a little bit tricky. So it's not just a day-for-day day count in the current year. You would count every day in the existing year, so in this case, 2023, you would count a third of the days in the previous year, so 2022, and a sixth of the days in the second uh, preceding year, so 2021. If the sum of that adds up to 183, and you've also been here for at least 31 days in the current year, you're a U.S. tax resident. And you will be a U.S. tax resident as of the first day you were in the country during the year you meet that test, right? So you could not, you, you may meet the test in October, but you were here in January even temporarily. Well, you're going to be treated as a tax resident since January, effectively. So you may end up paying more tax and you got the complexities of filing the returns and you've just created a nightmare because you weren't paying attention and you didn't know the laws, frankly. And, and you may be a resident in two countries at that point, right? Because uh, yeah, right. each country has their own residency rules and a lot of times they overlap. What about, um, what about non-resident aliens? Do they get taxed? How do they? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the key things we focus on is the source of income, right? For a resident alien or a citizen, sourcing is really important because it drives the availability of foreign tax credits. You can get a foreign tax credit for foreign income taxes paid on foreign source income. So identifying the source is really paramount. Likewise, for a non-resident alien, they're only subject to tax on certain items of U.S. income and income that's effectively connected with a U.S. trade or business. So knowing the source of particular items of what I call portfolio income, uh, stuff like dividends, interest, rent, royalties, that's really important. If it's not U.S. source under our rules, or if there's a treaty in place between the U.S. and whatever country this person is a resident of, the sourcing may change. So it's really important to nail that down at the outset because essentially that dictates the extent to which you're subject to U.S. tax. You know, the, the, something that stands out in, in the two jurisdiction, right? Let's you pick a country, whatever country this person might be from, and they get subject to U.S. tax law. And then they, they, you know, let's say they are actually a U.K. citizen and you got, you basically have two governments and they have treaties for this, but they're basically fighting not fighting, but they're they're one of them's going to lay claim to the taxation of the dollars, and the other one's not. And you and I have talked about it that 
you, you got to get your you got to get your reporting right so that you don't end up in a situation where the U.S. is saying, "Hey, you owe me tax," and Great Britain or France or whoever is saying, "Hey, you owe me tax." Yeah, that sounds like a really precarious situation to be in. That, that happens all the time, and I think that's where foreign tax credits come into play. So if, if there is a treaty in place, those credits are basically guaranteed under the treaty. If there's not, fortunately, the tax code provides for uh, credits for resident aliens, citizens, green card holders. And in most cases, the foreign country where this non-resident may be a resident has similar rules. So they should be able to get a tax credit on one side or the other, depending on residency and depending on source. What I just heard is I need you to sort through that because that sounds really hard. <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. It's we try to approach these these issues methodically, right? So, uh, so where we, is the we, person resident? Where is the source from? Is there a tax credit? Is there a treaty? Perfect. So let's talk about the most common international tax issues you currently see. Like, what is it? You know, we bring a client team. We're like, hey, Connor, you need to look at this. We don't think something's going right. What What are you seeing out there? So let's, let's kind of divide it between inbound and outbound. So for inbound clients, right, people who are not citizens or green card holders, a lot of what we do is what I call pre-immigration planning, making sure that that person's assets and affairs are, first of all, fully understood before they come here so we know what they have to report. And to the extent that we can um, engage in some creative planning before they become a resident, uh, we do that. So one of the things we see a lot is uh, – you know, people don't realize when they come to the U.S., they may have held an asset for 15 years, 20 years, uh, which has appreciated substantially. You do not get a step up in your basis as of the date that you become a U.S. resident. And what that means is that if you sell it whilst you're a resident, you could effectively be paying gain on, you know, the value that accumulated long before you ever had any connection to the U.S., so there's some things we can do to get outside of that and effectively step the basis up so that you're not paying that tax. Um, but again, it's important to get out in front of it, do it before that individual comes here, because oftentimes what we see is that if you do not do it and you become a resident, sometimes it's too late. That sounds like a head exploder. <laughs> yeah, people don't like that rule. <laughs> uh, hey, I have this property that I've owned in Germany for 25 years. And I moved here and I'm only going to be here a year and I'm going to sell this property. And you're telling me I got to pay tax here in the U.S.? <clears throat> yeah, precisely. Without any planning, that's in a nutshell how it works. So the rub there, I think, would be, you know, if you're the challenge for someone that's international, that's, that's a foreign national, and they're going to move here. Provided, you know, if they go get the right counsel and they get the right advice in their homeland, they're probably going to want to connect somebody in the U.S. like you, right? So the the, the yeah. rub probably is going to be they, they probably more often than not find that out too late is my guess. It depends on when they come to us, right? Um, if people who, who know that they're going to be coming here, whether it's as a permanent relocation or they're being seconded for their job, they tend to get out in front of it. It's the people who accidentally become a resident. You know, they just well, happen to spend too much time here. There's there's the third camp of people really 
are good at creating businesses and creating opportunities and don't think through some of the mechanics from a compliance standpoint and they don't get in front of it and they just set up a business and they find out yeah. too late. Right. That I suspect yeah. that happens. Next All thing you know, yeah. next thing they're here and they're like, what do you mean? And then they're, you know, so, all right, well, that's a really, that's an important piece. And, you know, the professionals out there or to people that are listening to this, the call out there, I think is, Hey, if you know somebody that's thinking about doing business in the U S or coming to the U S anything of that nature, you need to encourage them to seek professional counsel because there's no do overs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I'll speak for both of us. Most of our clients are, are really good and successful at their respective businesses, but oftentimes they don't consider the tax consequences that are endemic to where they're setting up businesses, where they're living. Um, so again, LegalZoom didn't tell me about that, Connor. Right? No, you can't get this stuff off LegalZoom. So you, yeah. you yeah. got to call up me or Kyle and, and somebody should get out in front of it before it's too late. What else is on the pre-immigration planning? What else you guys do there? Yeah. So another issue we see a lot, which kind of touches on estate planning is um, the treatment of foreign trusts, right? So we have a concept here um, called grantor trust by which they're effectively disregarded. So the person who settled the trust is treated as if they own those assets, they're taxed on all the income. Those rules get really tricky when it comes to offshore trusts because the, the general rule is that if, if you're a foreign person and you set up a trust within five years of coming to the U.S. and becoming a resident, and that trust can in any way, shape, form, or implication uh, benefit a U.S. person, it's effectively treated as a grantor trust to you, the settlor who's now coming to the U.S. and will be taxed on the trust income as it arises. Again, there's stuff we can do to get out ahead of that and you know prevent those rules from applying, but that's another rule that's not intuitive at all. You know, unless you were really keyed into this stuff, you probably wouldn't even know it existed. So uh, that is not intuitive. You would yeah. think, Hey, I set this trust up four years ago. You wouldn't even think about that. Right. And we see that all the time. You know, most of our clients have some kind of uh, inheritance tax planning structure set up in whatever country they're from. And again, it's important to review it before they become a U.S. resident, identify the issues, and uh, propose strategies, right, to simplify things, make sure they're not taxed on phantom income. No one likes that. <laughs> no one likes that. Yep. What about, um, so you, you, let's, let's pivot to the second category, the, the outbound issues, because, right, that, that's really people that are uh, international. They may be con- coming, considering coming here, but primarily most people we're going to talk to live in the U.S., and they may be looking to go the other direction. And start businesses in other countries. So what are you seeing on that front? So I'd say the biggest issue that we face there are our controlled foreign corporation rules. And just real briefly, a controlled foreign corporation is a foreign corporation, which is controlled by U.S. shareholders. Yeah. Uh, Control means 50% or more of uh, the voting power of value. And a U.S. shareholder, for the purpose of these these rules, is a person who owns at least 10% in that company. So those rules got much more complicated following the passage of our Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2017, such that now all income, pretty much all income earned by a controlled foreign corporation, 
is subject to some level of U.S. tax, even if it's not distributed to the U.S. shareholders. And that's basically a anti-deferral regime that Congress passed, I think it was the first time in the 60s, to really disincentivize people from using foreign corporations to house uh, certain types of passive income. Obviously, in 2017, the scope of those rules was greatly expanded because now it doesn't apply just to passive income, it's essentially operating income. So you could have a business overseas that's controlled by U.S. shareholders, um, and it's an operating business, right? It's manufacturing stuff, it's um, providing consulting services, whatever it is. You would think that that's you know, income that's taxed abroad, no connection to the U.S. There's no reason why the U.S. would want to tax it, but unfortunately now... Uh, there is a reason, and it likely will be taxed, even absent a distribution. So you spend all your time figuring out the country that has the low tax rate so that you can keep more of your money and reinvest it into your business. And there's basically a tax spread there of some nature. And to your point, they came in and squashed the anti-deferral regime, right? Like, what a great term that is. But they're just saying, hey, you're not allowed to do that anymore. We're going to get our cut. Is that right? Yeah, precisely. And it, it was, you know, that the anti-deferral aspect was a bigger issue when our corporate tax rate was 35%. Now it's 21%. So the spread between our rate and even rates of other countries that are quote unquote low, is not that great. So again, it's not intuitive. It doesn't make much sense, but it's important to understand that the rules could apply and to really review structures and make elections and take proactive steps to mitigate the impact of those rules. It also says, hey, you shouldn't just use Connor for a one-time setup. It says you really need to have somebody like you in your life to navigate these things because it's changing all the time. I mean, it is. And our, our clients are always setting up new businesses, right? So yep. <laughs> they don't always consult with their tax advisors or someone like you, Kyle, first. It's usually after the fact. Well, they want to figure out why it doesn't work the way they thought it worked is what they want to do. Yep. Right. Exactly. Hey, well, I thought it did this. Well, it doesn't do that. But I want it to do that. Well, it doesn't. <laughs> what about um, what other opportunities from an outbound standpoint? So a lot of what we do is um, look at treaties and try to use them to, you know, either change the source of income so that it's not double taxed or leverage a lower rate. The U.S. has a expansive network of treaties, particularly in Asian and, and European countries. There's not too many treaties between the U.S. and South American countries, but there's talk that, you know, Brazil, for example, will sign a treaty with us soon, hopefully. So we try to try to use treaties wherever we can. What, what, how do you guys use the treaties? What does that mean? So, um, again, it, it primarily comes down to sourcing issues. So the treaties look at particular items of income and say which country, as between the U.S. and the U.K., for example, has the primary right to tax that income. A lot of times, though, it, it will reduce the rate, the withholding rate, whether it's in the U.S. for income earned by a non-resident or in the U.K. for income earned by a U.S. resident who's a non-resident in the U.K. For example, our, our withholding rate on dividends to non-resident aliens is a flat 30%. However, if that non-resident alien is a uh, resident of a treaty country, that could come down to zero percent in some cases so that's a huge tax savings and it works i guess inversely for people who 
are U.S. residents, citizens, and they're going into other countries and earning that type of income. Yeah, that uh, that would be helpful if you could get that tax spread and use it to your advantage. The, yeah. you know, on that note, what if, and this is, what if you're a foreign national, you set up an LLC here in the U.S. and <coughs> you make, I don't know, what seven figures in profits, right? And you have this money in this LLC. Can you talk a little bit about how pass-through entities may be viewed by? other countries because yeah, we, we, we have a case like this that we're working on right now. Right. Um, yep. and this goes back to the importance of really understanding the interaction between U S tax law and the tax law of a foreign country. So an LLC, obviously you can elect to treat it as a corporation here, but the default position is that it's either disregarded if there's one owner or it's a partnership. If there's two or more, most other countries, don't view LLCs like that. They view them as corporations. Most European countries, for example, um, France, the UK, Spain, an LLC would be taxed as a corporation. What that means is that for a non-resident who comes here, opens up an LLC, uh, which operates a US business, they're paying tax on the income as it arises. You know, they get a K-1, whatever it is. In their home country, say the UK, they don't pay tax until they actually take money out of the country, or sorry, the, um, the company, and it's viewed as a distribution or a dividend. The issue there is that there's no, because each country views the, the income differently, you'll often lose the foreign tax credit, right? Because the UK views the corporation as a taxpayer, and then the individual as a taxpayer only if they could receive a distribution, whereas in the U.S., there is no entity level tax. It's only a personal tax and it's paid as the income arises as opposed to when you take it out. So again, really the importance of understanding how those companies are going to be treated abroad, I think is paramount. Um, let, me, let me jump in here because I want to make sure the audience understands what that means. So you, this foreign national sets up an LLC in the U.S., they get, they end up making, let's just use an easy number, a million dollars in profit in K1, K1 profit. So they got to file a U.S. tax return that says, hey, they made a million bucks. And let's say they owe $350,000 of tax for that million dollars of income that flowed through that entity to them personally. Now, if they don't have money in the U.S. to pay it, I guess you, I guess you could probably pay it from international money, I guess. What people may end up doing is saying, hey, I'm going to make a distribution from the LLC to pay the tax because that's where the money's sitting is in this bank account in my LLC, which if you're a U.S. resident and you're under U.S., you know, for people in the U.S., that's what you do all the time. But what you're saying is, hey, they make that distribution of $350,000. Now their home country says, oh, that's a distribution from a corporation. We're going to tax that. As a dividend, right. As a dividend. And, and the, the income tax that they paid here on the flow-through income, in most cases, is not creditable against their home country tax because the, the revenue authority in that country is levying the tax on a dividend, which we don't, right. we don't recognize here because LLCs are flow-through. Ouch. That's a gotcha right there. That, yeah, that could so, be quite problematic. Yeah, as, as you know, right? Um, 
So again, really getting out in front of these things, being proactive, restructuring companies where we can uh, to avoid that impact is, is critical. And, you know, if we, if we get out there really far in advance, we can actually advise people on what types of entities to set up here that don't have that disparity in treatment. What, um, if that person, let's just talk through that. So let's say that same situation, somebody from a foreign country sets up the LLC, makes a million bucks. Now they got a million dollars in the LLC. They pay the U.S. They got to pay that U.S. tax. Hopefully they have money elsewhere if they don't want to get double taxed. And kind of going back to the original part of the discussion about worldwide income, is it possible for that person to say, hey, I'm going to go stay 183 days in the United States in 2023, become a U.S. tax resident, which then would eliminate their their homeland's taxing authority because they're not they don't live there anymore. I mean, they got to change jurisdiction. They got to change um, domicile, right? They got to probably move here, but maybe it depends on how what the rules are in the the home country, right? Because yep. as I said before, you could be a dual resident. Because our, our residency rules are different than the UK, different than France. Um, so uh, to go back to treaties, another importance of a treaty is that if you find yourself in that situation where two countries want to tax you as a resident and there's a treaty in place, the treaties all have what, what are called tiebreaker rules, which essentially uh, assign a single country of residence for purposes of the treaty. And you know that way two jurisdictions aren't trying to tax you a hundred percent on the same income. We don't want that. That's what we want to avoid exactly. at all yeah. costs. Yeah. Well, I, if you haven't got the flavor of the podcast, it says this is complicated stuff. And Connor and I had prepped out for this podcast a couple of days ago. And Connor sent me this list of four pages long of all these issues. And, <laughs> We, I was like, well, I'm not sure we're going to be able to cover all that. And and we're not. We're not going to be able to cover it all today, Connor. Um, no, that, that was the short list. Like, there's a longer the, list out there. Yeah, there's a much longer list. Um, yeah. I think there's a whole set of rules about how the U.S. decides to lay claim to your to your tax dollars, right? Like there's, there's a whole bunch of rules there. And, yeah, and I, I think what we've talked about thus far is really on the income tax side. Um, mm-hmm. But... International tax also applies in the estate and gift tax context too. Totally different set of rules though. So it's important to know those. Um, just real briefly to touch on that, you know, we, we, we've talked a lot about residents and how the U.S. treats someone as a U.S. resident, what the rules are. It's a bit different when it comes to whether you're a resident for transfer tax purposes, because we don't, we look at the number of days that you spend here, but it's not determinative, right? It really comes down to where you're domiciled. Assuming you're not a U.S. citizen, because again, if you're a U.S. citizen, you're subject to a state tax and gift tax on everything. If you're not, we we have to nail down where you're domiciled. And in a nutshell, domicile is the place to which you intend to return permanently whenever you're away. So not a really helpful definition, but there's a lot of factors that go into that determination that we look at, try to say where the person is uh, resident for gift and estate tax purposes. What if, um, if you're a U.S. tax resident, Connor, let's say you're from, let's just pick Germany. You pick Germany, you, you move here, you become a U.S. tax resident, you don't get a green card, 
you're here for a number of years and you have an estate <coughs> worth 30, 40, 50 million bucks, whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. Are you subject to estate tax just by being a U.S. tax resident? Not just by virtue of being a U.S. income tax resident, but you may be a U.S. transfer tax resident based on your domicile, which case that estate is subject to you know our 40% estate tax. But you would be for sure if you were a green card holder, right? That is a, another factor that they look at. Again, it's okay. it's not it's not going to determine it one way or the other. Um, it's really facts and circumstances based. You know where your connections are strongest, where your family is, where you're registered to vote, stuff like that. I think in your example, you mentioned Germany. Most European countries have estate tax treaties with the U.S., which essentially operate on a conceptual level in the same way as income tax treaties. They try to ensure that two countries aren't levying an inheritance tax or an estate tax on the same assets, right? So it's important to look at the treaties, but I guess preliminarily, let's we always try to determine whether that person is a domiciliary here, meaning a resident for estate tax purposes, yep. and whether they are abroad too, right? Because you can be a, a resident in two countries for income and estate tax purposes. Oh, man. It's complicated. There is, um, in the essence of time, I, 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 and for the benefit of the, the people listening, there is one additional piece I want to touch on, but we don't have a whole lot of time, but sure. it's kind of the special withholding considerations. If you could just summarize what that means, because I think that affects people and they don't, you know, yeah. we, can you hit, can you touch upon that in short order? Yeah, that's really relevant for a non-resident to earn you know, um, certain types of income in the U.S. or they have a partnership interest here or they have a business here. So I guess the, the default rule in the U.S. for what we call fixed, determinable, annual or periodic income, so portfolio income, investment income, it's a 30% withholding tax on the gross amount. There's no deductions allowed. Again, you can reduce that by treaties. There are some statutory reductions as well for interest and stuff like that. Um, but important to realize that if you're a non-resident, you're coming in and you have a dividend that's paid by a U.S. company, default position is a 30% withholding tax on that. If you have income that's connected to a U.S. trader business, uh, you have to file a tax return and you're subject to tax at graduated rates, just like you would if you were a citizen. Um, but if you're a partner in a U.S. partnership that has effectively connected income, the partnership's obligated to withhold 30% on income that's allocable to you through the partnership. Um, again, you'd have to file. And a if tax they return. don't, <laughs> if they don't, the partnership's on the hook. So the, the withholding gotcha. tax liability falls on the withholding agent. In most cases, that doesn't mean that the IRS won't try to get it from the recipient of the income. But I think the idea is that those people are not residents. So they're mobile. So they can leave the country, in which case it's harder to, levy bank accounts and stuff like that. So they go after the withholding agent. Two other regimes, just to keep in mind, just real briefly, uh, FERPTA, right? So that applies to dispositions of U.S. real property interests by uh, non-residents. And the default position there is a 15% withholding tax on the amount realized, not the gain. So in some cases, depending on the property, the withholding tax could be more than the gain. We don't like that. 
no, another tough pill to swallow, right? Well, we uh, are, wait, uh, man, we could keep going on and on. I know there's some items here that we didn't even get to $25,000 reporting penalties that add up quickly. Like there's, there's a bunch of stuff going on and we just unfortunately run out of time, but I've had a great time with you today, Connor. Yeah. Hey, Eric, what do you think of that? I think that, uh, Every time I hear one of these podcasts, especially something this complicated, I feel like people are asked to play a game that they don't know the rules to. That's a good way to put it. Right? I mean, it's it's like you're you're sitting down with your family playing this, you know, get this elaborate board game out. You have no idea what the rules, and it's just chaos. And I just don't think that that's exactly fair to somebody who's trying to start a business, trying to help other people by, you know, hiring other people. And then you've got all these complicated rules on, you know, what country wants to take your money. So... It's, yeah, it's right. obviously you need to contact a professional because you can't leave it to chance. Well, with that in mind, Connor, Hey, it has been awesome talking to you. I love working with you. I encourage everybody. If you have any of these issues to reach out to Connor or myself, Connor, might uh, give everybody your contact information in case they want to get in touch with you. So yeah, my, my email is a long one, but I'll give it to you. Uh, you can always look me up on the Citron Cooperman website. I'm based out of our LA offices, but if you want to email me directly, it's C for Connor and my last name Southwell, S-O-U-T-H-W-E-L-L at CitronCooperman.com. And you can always contact me and I'll get you in contact with Connor if you need any help. Yep. Any parting thoughts there, Connor? Yeah, I think I would just say like our goal collectively is to kind of make sense of these rules to the extent that we can and to really have a holistic view of all our clients, you know, their circumstances, their their life, their family, their businesses, and, uh, you know, try to apply the rules as efficiently as possible, which is a challenge, but uh, that's what we're here for. And I think you guys do a great job. Connor, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity, guys. Connor and Kyle, thank you so much for the podcast. A lot of great information. Um, Kyle, I want folks to be able to reach out to you and your team as well um, because of all the things that you do. How do they get a hold of you? Uh, probably the easiest way is just to look us up on the internet, centurawealth.com. You know, uh, our phone number is 858-771-9500. Very straightforward. Pretty straightforward. Again, thank you so much. And of course, our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when the team comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. 
Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.